you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Titus, chapter 2. <clears throat> the title of the message this morning is Living Between Grace and Glory. It's what we see in this text in verses 11 through 15. So if you found your place in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, uh, would you let it be known by saying amen? Follow along as I read. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the Lord, uh, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let us pray. Father, as we come to the time in our service where we worship you through listening and hearing your word, we acknowledge your presence in, a, in our midst. Holy Spirit, we have invited you into this place and we, we ask, God, that you would speak into our very hearts and our lives, Lord. We ask that your living word would come alive and would live within us. And Lord, that in, in this moment, in our time this morning together, that you would bar all distractions from our minds and that you would you would focus us by your Holy Spirit's power and presence that you would focus us to hear your word and to apply it to our lives. And so Lord, we ask that you would do this great work of 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 speaking to us and leading us and teaching us as your word even says this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Appearances can be a, uh, a strange thing sometimes. In fact, I, at the risk of looking very silly and foolish, I, I want to play a game of charades. And so I, I need your help. As soon as you know what I'm, I'm doing, as soon as you know what posture uh, I'm, I'm presenting before you, I just want you to, to shout it out, okay? Just tell me what posture it is, all right? Whatever, whatever comes to your mind, okay? That's how charades works, right? Let me get off camera. Okay, are you ready? Okay, very good. All right? Uh, so here's, here's the next one. I'll, I'll come on this side. Uh, oh, wow, okay. Uh, okay, here's the next one. All right, very good. Give us a hard one. Okay, how about this one? No. Jump. Yeah, jumping. Okay, that was a little bit harder, right? All right, uh, enough of that. So my posture indicates a specific activity, right, that, that I'm about to carry out. 
and, and this appearance or, or this, this posture that we have, I, I, I think God's word, Paul is telling Titus, who is then to charge and to, uh, to tell the church to lead the elders of the church as he's setting elders in place. I think he's, he's challenging Titus and then challenging the church that as we await Christ's glorious return, there is a certain posture that our lives are to reflect. So when others are looking in, and seeing our lives, what posture are they seeing? Does the posture of our lives point others to see the glory of Christ? Does the posture of our lives point others to see authentic Christian living? And so this morning, I I want us to reflect and to ask this very question, what posture does my life reflect Humanity has been in need of God's grace since our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they sinned in the garden, they fell, they rebelled against God. And they sinned, they rebelled by believing the lie that they could be like God. And then guilt and and shame covered their lives. And because of the reproach of their sin, God drove them outside of the garden into the wilderness. He drove them out of his continual presence. And so they were banished from God's glorious good gift, God's glorious good garden. And although they had once enjoyed being in his presence continually, they now became subject to God's judgment. It was because of the curse of their sin. And though God graciously provided covering for their nakedness when he sent them out, they would, as a consequence of their sin and rebellion against God, experience pain, physical hardship, even physical death because of their sin. Well, the Cretans are no different, really. You and I are no different. The Cretans are no different in that they, are, they too are in need of God's grace. In fact, Titus 1.12 points that out, doesn't it? In verse 12 of Titus chapter 1, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Their false teachers in verses 10 through 16 are highlighted. Their lives lacked any distinction from worldly passions and patterns. These were distinctions that if they were true teachers and followers of Christ should have been reflected in their lives because of the transforming power of Christ at work in them. As we see in chapter 3, that's the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who are converted to Christ. And so we read in verse 10 of chapter 1, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. This described those who were the teachers within the congregation, are the congregations, On the island of Crete. Verse 16, it tells us their activity. They profess to know God, that is with their mouth, but they deny him with their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Have you noticed through Titus, or even if you read through the pastoral epistles, but especially in Titus, that he focuses a lot on virtuous living, on good conduct? 
right? I mean, every turn of the page, every so many verses, there's a focus on our conduct and, and why it matters and, and how our conduct is to be changed and transformed and look different. And Paul's focus on virtue and conduct is his way of contextualizing the gospel for the Cretan church. I mean, if we see this as the description of how they were acting, we see why Paul is is focusing so heavily on the need for elders to be set apart. Look in verse 8. Elders, right, are to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Chapter 1, verse 8, I'm sorry. He must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught, as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict. And so Paul is contextualizing the gospel for those who are on the island of Crete, saying this is how you are to live your life. This is to be the portrait of your life, or this is to be the posture that you reflect and point others to see. And so he's saying authentic Christian living proceeds from the gracious saving act of God in Jesus Christ. And that is, God's grace annuls our works and our efforts of securing or maintaining God's affection. We cannot merit God's affection, God's love, in and of our own works or in and of our own self. And so, here's the thing. As we live between the appearance of grace and the appearance of glory... Paul is teaching us through his letter to Titus that there are some specific postures that our lives are to be in. Boundaries. And I want to highlight those two this morning. The first posture is the posture of authentic Christian living. And I think we see that in verses 11 through 12 and in verse 14. But first, I want you to note that this passage gives us really a theological foundation for authentic Christian living. The boundaries for authentic Christian living are determined by God's word. Look in verse 1 of chapter 2. What does Paul tell Titus? But as for you, what? Teach, right? Teach what accords with sound doctrine. That means scripture, God's word, sound doctrine is informing how the church is to live. And so in verses 2 through 10, as we saw last week, as Pastor Drew preached, we see there are certain ways, certain certain ways that, that believers are to live. And particularly we saw last week with older women training younger women. But we also see in this passage, older men are, are training younger men in verses 2 through 10. And then that same word, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrines, teach, that is bracketed at the end of this passage in verse 15. Look at what he says in verse 15. Declare these things. That word for declare, it's the same word for teach in verse 1. And the point is this. God's word must inform and direct our daily lives. It's God's word that instructs us and and teaches us how we are to live. It's God's word that trains us in how to live godly lives, how to live upright, how to live self-controlled. God's word informs us and teaches us. That's why he says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Stand on the word. He's telling Titus and Titus is telling the elders of the churches. 
So verse 11, then, is the theological framework for authentic Christian living, which is commended in Titus 2 through 10. So what does the posture of authentic Christian living look like? Well, let's look first in verse 11. It looks like, or it begins with conversion. Look at what he says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, right? God's grace has appeared. This is the work of Christ appearing. It points us to see the person of Jesus Christ. He is the grace of God that has appeared that Paul is telling Titus about here and telling us about. Jesus Christ himself, when he came to the earth and he walked the earth, he was God's grace given to mankind, and he appeared for the very specific reason of doing a couple of things. Number one, he gave himself up. Look in verse 14. It says in verse 14, who, speaking of Jesus Christ, gave himself up for us. This speaks of the selfless, sacrificial work of Christ. He laid down his life so that we might have salvation. He gave of himself on the cross to do something, to redeem us from all lawlessness. So for him to redeem us, it means that he purchased, he purchased our sin. He purchased us from our sin. He died as our representative and our substitute. What did we do to deserve this grace? We didn't do anything. We've done nothing to deserve the grace of God. We did nothing to merit His grace. In fact, it's an unmerited gift of God. Jesus Christ appeared in the flesh to redeem us and to purify us for what? For Himself. That we would be zealous for good works. He redeemed us and purified us for himself as a people for his own possession. You know, this is a fulfillment of what God spoke of his people back in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. In Exodus 19, verse 5, hear the word of the Lord this morning. Listen, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth for all the earth is mine or listen to ezekiel 37 23 the this prophecy they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions but i will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. You see, the point is God's saving grace has come to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, when conversion happens in the life of an individual, in a person's life, they become zealous for good works. Now, not automatically. There's a a training that needs to happen. There is a a time when we are growing in God's word. But but inside, there there is this training that's occurring, and it's leading us to be zealous for good works. Not good works for the sake of earning anything. Good works for the sake of displaying this gracious salvation that God has given us. And so we see it leads us to transformed 
living. And we see this in verse 12. Look at what happens. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. This transformed living is stated negatively and positively here in this verse. First, negatively training us to renounce or really to deny ungodliness and worldly passions. The ungodliness that he's talking about, it's most likely referring to the qualities of of, of external behavior and conduct that others see in my life that's on display outwardly. It's the outward activities that would bring shame and reproach upon God's name when observed by others. And so the renouncing of ungodliness and worldly passions has its beginning point at our conversion to Christ. These worldly passions are the more internal seed of of a person's life. And these are the things that lead us to external or outward conduct. These are things internally like the appetites of the flesh. These worldly passions that he speaks about are are those things like drunkenness and fornication, or the inward cravings, the, the attitudes of the heart, anger, ambition, malice, so on and so forth. Verse 3 of chapter 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, right? We, we identified with this. At one point in our lives before conversion, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But listen, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of any works, right? That's what He says here in verse 5. Not on the basis of any works, but according to His righteousness. According to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. And listen, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of God by his Holy Spirit in the life of his children. He renews us. He regenerates us. He washes us. He cleanses us. And he teaches us how to live in one way where we are denying, we are putting aside, we are doing away with ungodliness and worldly passions. Negatively, we are being trained in this way. Put these things aside. Deny them. Get rid of them. They no longer or to characterize your life, believer. Instead, you're being trained. You're being trained in self-control, uprightness, godly living. So this renouncing of ungodliness and worldly passions has its beginning at our conversion to Christ, but it continues to be worked out in and through the believer's life as his training happens in the word, as her training happens in the word, hearing and listening to the living word of God. The connection, John chapter 1, we, we're instructed and taught by the living word of God. Think, think about John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, where does that point us back to? It points us back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. And then, 
what, what Paul's talking about here, the appearance of grace in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was, he was there in the beginning. And then we see John says in John 1, 14, the Word did what? It became flesh, yeah. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. He appeared. He came and he appeared among us and he walked among us. And then in John 1, 18, John tells us no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In other words, this grace has appeared in the person of God, the son, Jesus Christ. He has walked the earth. The one who was with God in the beginning at the foundation of the world has stepped into our humanity and he has done something extraordinary. He has made God known to us. He has revealed the father to us. And so when we come to God's word, we see that God's word is teaching us how to deny, to rid our lives of ungodliness and how to live in self-control, how to live uprightly, how to live godly lives. So the manifestation of grace in the person of Christ and the revelation of his word is teaching us how to live is teaching us how to have postures of authentic Christian living. And so positively, it trains us to live virtuously. And I think he highlights three specific areas of life where this training occurs. First, it has to do with our relationship to self. Self-controlled, right? This is, are we controlling the appetites and desires of our lives? To be self-controlled, to be upright, and, and to live godly lives requires that we are, we are first converted, and then we are trusting and following and, and living for Christ. And so self-controlled speaks to those physical appetites that, that must be brought under control. But secondly, our relationship to others. How are we living in relationship to others? He says that we're to be upright. This is the word for righteous. For justice. And I think this speaks to how we live regarding others. We are we as believers are to seek and to do justice toward others. But thirdly, it involves our relationship with God. That is, we are to live godly lives and this call to living godly lives it, it, it has to do with the believer learning and, and growing in the knowledge of God so that our lives are, are lived out in a demonstrative way before others. And chapter 3, verse 5 tells us how this happens. We're equipped to live out in this way by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So here's the contextualization, all right? For the Cretans... This was a radically different way of living. For the Cretans, those liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, this was a radically different way of life. It was one they couldn't do on their own. They needed, they needed to be trained and taught in the word. They needed elders, overseers, who would exhort them who would rebuke them even in error, but who would teach them and teach them to live and to trust and to love the word of God, sound doctrine. 
And so the renouncing of ungodliness and worldly passions while simultaneously being trained to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives was the way they were to sound the kingdom note of the gospel to the lost world and to the culture in which they were living. So the posture of authentic Christian living is concerned with our relationship to God, that we are to live godly lives. It's concerned with our relationship to others. We are to seek and do justice on behalf of others. And then it's also concerned with our relationship to self. We are to live self-controlled lives. Let's guard our hearts and our minds in Christ. We must seek to guard our very lives. And to live self-controlled. The posture of authentic Christian living is to be accompanied by the posture of anticipation for Christ's glorious return. Secondly, the anticipation for Christ's glorious return. I remember as a child waiting and ready to go on vacation. I mean, the first time I found out we were going to Disney World, I couldn't sleep all night. I mean, I was excited. I was ready to go. I don't think that's the kind of anticipation that that Paul's referencing here when we're anticipating, waiting on the glorious return of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. But I do think it's similar as an adult. When it's time for vacation, I mean, a few weeks out, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to rest, right? You, you know what I'm talking about. When you go to, on vacation, you're You're going to rest. Eugene Peterson talks about the Sabbath rest, and he says it's a day where we are to pray and to play. And that's what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to praying and to playing and to enjoying God's good creation. We're looking forward to a day when work is not laborious. It's not taxing. It's restful. It's a day when all of our greatest hopes will be realized in the face of our glorious Savior, Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is advocating here, he's advocating for a posture of anticipation for Christ's glorious return. We are waiting. We are longing. We are longing for that eternal rest in God's presence, the goodness that God has called us to walk in and to experience. So because of Christ's first appearance through his life and his ministry, his death, his resurrection and his ascension, it points us to what verse 12 or verse, yeah, verse, 12, verse 13 rather is saying. We are to be waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of our the great the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We are waiting and longing for that day when He will gloriously appear and take us to be in His presence, and we will live in the midst of the new heavens and the new earth, and we will enjoy God's presence. We'll be united gloriously with our Savior, and we'll enjoy the presence of His creation in our full humanity. And what he has fully created us to experience and to enjoy. Paul says it like this in other epistles. He says in Romans 8, 23. And not only the creation, but listen, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we await for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our Galatians 5, 5. 
for through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You see, we, the hope of right to be in right standing before God, not to be condemned, but to be there, to be right in his presence. Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what the hope, uh, what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? Or Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Peter speaks of the hope of Christ's glorious return in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Follow along on the screen or listen as I read. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Our first Peter five one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. You see, it's scattered throughout throughout Scripture. There is a glorious day coming, and we need to be awaiting it, waiting for it, looking forward to that day. And so, what Paul's telling Titus here is, we're living in between this time of grace. And glory, the gracious appearing of our Savior that has brought salvation and the glorious second appearing where he will take us to be in his presence eternally. So here's the million dollar question. How does all this apply to our lives today? Authentic Christian living in whatever culture exposes the cultural lies that are anti-God. Authentic Christian living in whatever culture exposes the cultural lies that are anti-God. Anything against God. And so I want to give you four practical ways that we, like Paul is doing for the Cretans, that we contextualize the gospel in our present age. So what are the cultural lies? I think one is we need to reclaim the purity of God's sexual ethic. Reclaim the purity of God's sexual ethic. Now, this has to do with self-control. There are three areas, right? Three areas of godly living. Self-control is one of them. So let me just speak for a minute. Hear me out. Process what I'm saying as this is contextualizing the gospel in our present today in America, in Baton Rouge, in this city, in our homes. The beauty and gift of oneness from God can only be experienced in the covenant relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. All other attempts at oneness are gross distortions of God's good gift to humanity. The ability to create life by two people coming together in intimacy, by a man and a woman coming together in intimacy, is a beautiful gift from God. And so this challenge for self-control in, in this text speaks right into our lives today. In chapter 1, verse 8, he tells the elders, 
one of the chief characteristics that is to be employed in their life is self-control. Notice in every demographic age group in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, and what? Self-controlled. Older women, likewise, to be reverent in behavior, so training young women to love their husbands and their children, verse 5, to be self-controlled. So older women to be self-controlled because they're teaching the younger women how to be self-controlled. Look at verse 8. All it says for young men, I'm sorry, verse 6. All it says for younger men, be self-controlled, right? This, this is huge. This, this, this is a call for us. We, we, this is one of the ways that we contextualize the gospel today. It is to reclaim the purity of God's sexual ethic. Think about the ways that it's been distorted. Human trafficking. In fact, Diane Thomas is leading a, a, a prayer initiative in connection with the Baptist Friendship House of New Orleans on how we can be more informed to pray against those who are trafficking women, children, even young boys, even perhaps some men. The pornographic industry is a degrading and decadent industry, and it's a multi-billion dollar industry in our country. Other ways that it's been distorted. The the distortion of God's design for marriage between a man and a woman is being fought right now in the Supreme Court with the homosexual agenda seeking to legalize same-sex marriages. So you might think, how in the world can I be a voice against the growing immoral tide? I mean, in some ways, we feel so helpless, right, to be able to change the tide or to be able to impact it in any way. I want to give you what I think are the answers, or is the answer, for at least a beginning point of how we change and contextualize the gospel, how we change the tide and not change the gospel, contextualize the gospel today. I think the answer involves strong marriages. The posture of authentic Christian living in the church gives a testimony to the world. And husbands and wives are to love one another and to love one another deeply. And they're to evidence and have healthy marriages. The marriage relationship is designed to display the gospel. And here's the thing. If we're going, if we're, by, by, by we're, I mean the church and even individuals that make up the church. If we're going to have a voice in defining marriage between a man and a woman, then listen, our lives must match. It must match our actions, our words. I'm sorry, our, our, our lives must match our words and the things we're saying must be carried out and undergirded by the things we are doing. And so here's the challenge. Be committed to your spouse. Pornography doesn't have a place in marriage. Adultery doesn't have a place in marriage. We must teach our children and our teenagers why it violates God's design to have sex outside of marriage and teach them what it means for this to happen in the marriage relationship, why it's important. Yesterday afternoon, we were watching an animated cartoon on ABC Family. And as we were watching it, a commercial for a new sitcom came on. And one of the lines from a character in the sitcom was, my dad is becoming a woman. To which Isaac asked me, dad, is that possible? How do you combat that? 
Here's how you combat it. Teach, teach, teach our children God's ways and God's design. Teach it in our home. Model it in our families. Older men, invest in younger men. Teach them. Older women, invest in younger men, women. Teach them. We, we must do that. Here's where it starts as a church. We've got to reclaim God's design for, for his purity and, and, and the sexual ethic. It's been distorted and grossly, it's been grossly manipulated and, and just torn apart today. And it is not a dirty word. It is God's gift to his creation. And so college students and singles, be committed to honoring God with your bodies and waiting until marriage to experience his good gift. And those who are gifted for singleness, I praise God for your celibacy. And I pray that God would, would, would use you and allow you to have devotion to him and serve his people well. The second practical way we contextualize the gospel in our present age is realize that abortion is an image issue. This is the call for uprightness, but it's also part of self-control because abortion is the result of lacking self-control and stepping outside of God's design for a sexual ethic. And so we must realize that abortion is an image issue. What I mean by that is we are to realize that we're image bearers of God. And we're to stand against the injustice of abortion in our land. These are very practical ways in which we can contextualize the gospel today. We are to be upright, seeking and doing justice. We've partnered with Georgia Small at River Community Church to promote abortion recovery classes and to try to help those who've experienced an abortion heal from the loss and the pain in the aftermath. We support local ministries to women, and and you can support and be involved in local ministries to women who have had abortions or are seeking counsel before they have one. We support Louisiana Baptist Children's Home that brings their uh, crisis crisis pregnancy RV, and they do screenings, and they, they uh, they help women. They counsel with women. They show them ultrasounds so that they can see their babies alive. These are ways that we can contextualize the gospel in our present age. A third practical way we can contextualize the gospel in our present age, which also deals with justice, is we must learn to be a neighbor to the foreigner in our land. If we're going to be a neighbor to the foreigner or land, it's going to mean that we get involved in their lives. There are immigrants coming into our country in large numbers today. One of the front lines and the ways that we are engaging with those immigrants is we are, we are having an ESL. We're offering ESL. That's an ES, ESL ministry here at Crosspoint. is a tremendous ministry, and there are several who are, who are involved. And, and this ESL ministry is the first line of connection to foreigners, listen, who are wanting and needing community. And it's a great way to impact people from all nations with the hope of the gospel. We befriend others and demonstrate the love of Christ. We can open our homes and we can exercise hospitality by inviting them into our homes. I've told you the story of Fatty. At least broken pieces of it. There's a guy named Fatty who came to Crosspoint and to connection with us at Crosspoint through the ESL ministry. 
And in this time that that he's been connected with us, we've been sharing the gospel and speaking to him about what it means to follow Christ, about what it means to live for him. And, and so there's just been dialogue and there's been life on life for the last year. And, and on March 25th, he was detained. He was arrested by ICE, Immigration Control Enforcement. He was locked away in Basile, Louisiana. And to this day, he is still there. And his wife, who's pregnant, due in June, and three kids are at home, and there's no way for provision for them. And so one of the ways that we at Crosspoint are being a neighbor to the foreigner in our land is we are helping to support that family. There have been people that have given of their own funds out of their own pocket to, to pay the rent for a month or to bri- provide food and to bring over there. And there are others who have gone and given of their time and sat down and visited and taken her to hospital visits and so on and so forth. And here's what's happened in the midst of all of that. God has used the church to shine the gospel so bright into Fatty's life that as he's in prison, he's come to faith in Christ. He wrote a letter to the church. This was the second one. He says, dear sisters and brothers in Cross Point Church, listen to how he writes it. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of all the help you provide for my family. I would like to spend special thanks to Pastor Nick, Miss Kathy, Miss Diane, and Miss Stephanie for their direct help in visiting my family weekly and helping my wife in every way they can. Also, I would like to thank Miss McKenzie who wrote me a letter full of hope and faith. My family in faith, he calls cross point. My family in faith. I'm still trusting God that he will help me out like every time, but only he knows when. I will keep myself in prayer and study and learning of God's word and works. And believe me, I can't wait for the day I'm out to meet all of you and share God's work with you. In the end of my letter, I'm asking each of you to keep me and my family in your prayer all the time that God will open the door for me to be together with you and with my family in the church as soon as possible. And also pray for him to provide all the needs for my family out there and for the new baby who is coming soon. With all my prayers, I thank you all in Christ's love, Fatty Amos. In a previous letter, he asked us to pray for the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of his family for salvation. One of the ways that we can contextualize the gospel. It's to be a a neighbor to the foreigner in our land. It is to be involved in the lives of others for the hope of the glory of God. There's a fourth way, and I'll close with this. The fourth way for us to contextualize the gospel in this present age is through our various vocational callings. God has called me as a pastor. God has called some of you as engineers, some as architects. Some of you are in a retired season of life and you're enjoying this privilege. God has called us to various different vocations. But the one thing that doesn't change is this call to godliness, our relationship to God, which transcends all these other areas. Our relationship to God. As we grow in our knowledge of God, we realize that he has called us into our various vocations and he goes with us there, even before us there. 
And so teachers, what does a posture of authentic Christian living look like in the classroom? You know. And you get together with other teachers and ask how, how they're doing in that. And for the businessmen, what does the, the posture of authentic Christian living look like in your business? How do you leverage the gospel in your business? You get together with other business leaders and you talk about that and you, you discern that and you seek to follow God as he leads you in that. And so on and so forth. So here's the question. How is God leading you to contextualize the gospel in this present age? For he's redeemed you. He's purchased your life. And you are now his possession. He's purified you so that you will be zealous for good works. So church, as we live between the appearance of grace and the appearance of glory, let us walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand so that we might bring him glory and advance his kingdom. Will we walk together and move forward and advance the kingdom of God? Will you pray about how God wants to use you, your life? What is the way that God is using you to contextualize the gospel in the vocations in which he has called you? I want to challenge you this morning to pray about what is the posture of authentic Christian living to look like in your life? Relationship to God, relationship to others, relationship to self. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of your gospel. Thank you, God, that you don't, you don't leave us on our own to navigate this life. Lord, help us to be faithful. Strengthen us by your Holy Spirit to live faithfully following you. Affirm us and reassure us, God, of our, of our trust in you and our walking with you. Lead us, Father. Direct our steps to be faithful, to be dependent upon you, and to live godly lives as we, as we learn and hear your word. Create within us, Lord, hearts and desires that long for you and that long to share you with others, that, that longs to live in the, the joy of walking faithfully and obediently after you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.